Bloody Elbow presents the Hey Not The Face podcast, the show that brings you the business side of combat sports, including contract review, financial analysis, fighter pay issues, and more. Hey Bloody Elbow podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content if available at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here's your host, John S. Nash, joined by his producer, Steffi Haynes. Hello and welcome to Hey Not The Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we have a guest. That's right. You heard us right. We brought a guest for you guys today. We have one of the antitrust attorneys, the guy that initiated the whole thing, Rob Macy. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely, John. I am going to turn everything over to your capable hands. I will only interject if I think I don't understand something. So take it away. A terrible, terrible decision you just made. <laughs> this show is going to be a disaster. Uh, yeah, We don't normally do interviews, but we thought we'd get Macy on her mainly because I noticed you have this major decision and I haven't seen you guys making the rounds in the press. The, the plaintiffs or the attorneys... I've seen you do some interviews, so obviously you're available, and I don't want to belittle the the people who do it. They did a great job, but it's not doesn't seem to be the major sites are asking for interviews with you guys, or at least you're not giving the major sites interviews. I don't know what the answer is to that. So I did think it would be great, since you are out there making the rounds, that this seems important that we should probably talk to you. So I guess the yeah, question no, I, I agree. I, I guess the you, question is, are people asking you to do interviews, and why are you guys not making the rounds? Um, for the, for the most part, no, we just do not get asked. We, we never have been asked, um, you know, since basically our, our inception, we just don't get asked. Is it because you're terrible speakers? Is it, is it your lack of charisma? Is there, or is there something else you're suggesting there? I mean, my, my best guess is we were so early on, there's something wrong with the UFC that people were not ready to accept that message when we were initially saying it, you know, back in 2007, eight, nine, I think there was some animosity towards us because at that time, you know, UFC was kind of the darling of everyone's eye. And that sort of, I mean, it appears to have just carried over. We, I mean, a lot of these sites don't cover us. Uh, they never have. Um, I, I don't believe it's anything that we're doing or not doing. It's just, just is. Well, I should point out that you were on MMA Uncensored, I believe, in the Bruno Gallon show, and both of them are really interesting interviews. People want to check it out. And John Fitch, got to give Jimmy Smith credit. He actually has been covering this suit, and he had Jim, he had uh, John Fitch on, on an excellent interview. So, so I, I should give the credit to those guys for doing it. And uh, and I also point out, I, guess- I am. I am going to request, I sent a request to the UFC and their attorneys that they want to come on the show to talk. We'll see if they will accept, but anyways. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you'll see, uh, I think, I believe Bloomberg is going to do another story with, uh, some of the fighters, probably some of the attorneys on this, uh, maybe the wall street journal. Um, it, it might be to the point where it's going to start to jump into more mainstream, mainstream media outlets, 
there there was a time early on when uh, there was definitely a reticence from our team's viewpoint on on giving interviews in the first place. And then if they gave interviews, they wanted to basically give little rote canned responses that you were, you know, kind of cliche, boring, uh, not very uh, informative. I think that's changed a little bit because they realize, you know, this, uh, unlike most of these cases, this case has a, a sort of a public notoriety component to it in that the athletes are famous, you know, they've been in the press their entire career. And it's sort of unlikely to ask these guys that have been going through this for 10 years now not to talk at all. That's that's tough. Mm. And uh, well, we also will get to the details later, the case and stuff. But There's also the component as a class. You have to inform the class. And if you're not talking, is that one of the reasons you guys weren't really allowed to talk because you hadn't officially been a class made a class yet? So you might be interfering with the membership. Is that is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Indirectly, it was more a fear of as a class rep, you know, you, we have to be very careful as to what we say, because they're not speaking for themselves individually. They're speaking on behalf of the entire class. So you want to avoid things that are very individual to you and, and say things that are applicable to all. And that there's a learning curve to that. Um, I, I think that was the reason initially there was a reticence to speak. And, and I do believe um, that is at least ameliorated slightly now that we do have the class certification order and they have been named class reps. Because like you said, there there is now an educational component as to why it's important for us to speak. Uh, we have to get the message out to fighters. You guys are represented. The same attorneys that have been working on this case for 10 years are now your your attorneys. You don't have to do anything. So if you get solicitations in the mail, saying, you know, in order to share in your fair share of the recovery, you need to retain your own counsel. That is not true now. Uh, the The impact of the judge's order from August 9th was instead of six fighters asking to file suit on behalf of 1,214, it's now those six are representing 1,214. So our case just became uh, much, much bigger um, with that ruling. Well, first of all, it must be a relief to get to get the class cert and the uh, and the hearing and have dates and stuff set down because what you've gone through, uh, I guess what I'm, you know, in the intro of the show, I give a description of what what's involved in the suit. I give the basic details. We don't have to go that. But what is what's been the journey to get here for you and your team to get this far? From concert or from filing or how, how well, far? We, we, we can go back from. Let's start with the moment when Carlos Newton showed up and uh, you guys filed on December fourteenth. And you know you can even go before me and Brent Brookhouse were driving you guys nuts asking questions, even though there's a lot of other strange stuff going on with other parties at the time. Uh, then we can go so, all so I think up this to is there. Interesting. There. So I'll, I'll I'll start with this, I guess. So in in two thousand twelve, uh, I get a call from. A fighter that goes into my voicemail and it just sits there for a few days because I was at that at that time kind of tired of doing favors and I was I just put it on the back burner. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to call that back. So he calls again, same guy, leaves a voice message. A couple days pass and I'm like, oh, I can hear the number, but I don't. I still don't know who who is calling. I don't know if it's a writer, or a manager, or a fighter. I have no idea. So I finally write down the number and I call. I go into voicemail. He calls back and I get him on the phone and he's like, here was his lead. He doesn't say hello. He doesn't say anything really. He says, yeah. So if I fly into Arizona, do you think we can meet up? 
And I say, yeah, sure. You know, thinking he wants to go to dinner or something. Well, who, who am I talking to? And uh, for anyone who knows Carlos, he mumbles a little bit. So he says, Carlos Nun. Like, who? Carlos Nun. Finally, I figure out who who I'm talking to. And it was kind of surreal to me because I literally had Carlos and Matt Hughes's poster hanging to my left, signed on the, on the wall of my office. So I was kind of chuckling. Hey, where'd you get my number? And he said, Pat Militich. Like, okay, yeah, I guess I should be talking to him. I'm like, yeah, sure. You come in, I'll meet with you. And again, I'm thinking, never going to come in. You know, Sure, I'll meet with him if he shows up. He shows up like two weeks later. <clears throat> Let's me know when he's coming in. I'm thinking we're going to go out to dinner. He's coming into Arizona to go on vacation or something. No, he, he wants me to pick him up at 8.30 in the morning, drive him into my law office, put him in a conference room with my Westlaw password so he can pull cases all day. He did that all week. So I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday of that week. I take him out to dinner and then take him to a baseball game, uh, Diamondbacks game. I'm like, Carlos, what are we doing, man? <laughs> he starts laughing. He goes, Macy, I know you figured it out. I've seen your articles. I've seen your presentations. You're filing an antitrust suit. And I start laughing. I, I go, Carlos, man, I'm, I'm a real estate attorney. He's like, I don't care. You're filing it. So the next day we started. And, and where Nash comes into this is Nash and Brent Brookhouse started calling me probably a good year and a half in advance of us filing that suit. And Nash would say stuff like, come on, man, I know you're working on an antitrust suit. And I would laugh. I'm just a real estate attorney, Nash. I don't know what you're talking about. Read my background. I don't do any antitrust. This goes on for months. I'm just kind of jacking around with Nash because I, I, I want to delay the press is, is really what I'm doing. He calls me, I want to say it was like February or March of 2014. And he says, Macy, you were in San Jose and you met with X, Y, and Z. And he was, he named like four of the five people that were at that meeting. And I'm like, oh shit, I know. What, what am I, what am I going to do now? Nash goes, you either give me something or I'm publishing tomorrow. So I said, yes, Nash, I'm working on an antitrust suit. Sit tight. I don't want you publishing yet, but you will be first to publish. I promise you that. And that happened right around nine months later. Um, it took, the whole process from Carlos meeting to filing ended up being right around 21 months. Um, and, and, you know, I, I started writing 15-page memos, sending them around to firms. I got nothing. 25-page memos, really nothing. So... In 2013, around June, I decide I'm going to write like a, I'm going to take like six months and I'm going to write a long, long brief with a lot of exhibits. And it was, it ended up being, I think, 117 pages long with about 300 exhibits that I put in binders and I FedExed them to these major national class action firms that I needed to come do this with me. Um, within about a week of those FedExes going out, we had meetings with really the two best in the country. They signed on soon after that. Uh, we started working on basically the revised complaint in 2014, uh, which we ended up filing towards the end of that year. Now, class cert, we ended up filing, I believe our initial motion for class certification, I wanna say around 2016. 
And then we had a series of hearings uh, throughout 2018 where the judge is holding evidentiary hearings with the major witnesses that he's ultimately going to use in his class certification decision. I believe we had uh, a status conference, I want to say September of 2019. And at that status conference, the judge says, uh, my class certification decision is going to be issued soon. I hoped to have it here with me today, but I'm not quite finished. We had another status conference, I want to say like around March of 2020. And at, at that status conference, he literally said, uh, expect it next, next week, I believe. He said, expect it Monday, I believe. Yeah, oh, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah like a week right. from, yeah, yeah, for Monday. Yeah, and then. Right. And then uh, three years later, we finally got it. But yes, he. Uh, yes. Uh, I that I, that should be the big. That's the question. What did you ever start getting nervous that he was never going to grant class certification? Because we ran into for people that are not familiar with the case, we ran into one was COVID slowed things down. Two, there was this other case that he was that was that had a similar argument being made, and he needed to let that pass through uh, the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court. But really, that also just seemed to be dragging on forever. So were you getting nervous at that point that after he had said it verbally several times and even said he had it written and it was going to come out, that we had not seen a class, a, a written class certification, the class hadn't been certified in writing until uh, earlier this month? I, I personally was not nervous uh, on the merits. I was getting nervous uh, about the delay just because it was starting to wear on our plaintiffs. I mean, uh, in all honesty, that they're sitting around waiting three years when, you know, basically we were told it was coming out within days. Um, we, we ran into the pandemic, which caused a delay, sort of just our luck. Uh, there was that Olean decision or Olean, uh, and also in the Ninth Circuit that went up on a full panel appeal which caused quite a delay. And then our judge basically took that appellate decision and cites it throughout his class certification order in our case. Um, that might end up being fortuitous to us in that he, used, he is using the latest authority from the Ninth Circuit in writing his opinion and he cites it repeatedly. So hopefully you know, that weighs in our favor on, on the pending appeal. Well, we're going to get to the appeal in a second because I want to go over some of the stuff, the, the the questions they raise about your case and some of my own personal problems with your case. But, you know. but uh, we're going to go back for a second. Uh, I don't think people quite realize this, as much as this case is dragged on, uh, we live kind of in a post uh, Lee versus Zufa world because before Lee versus Zufa, I would, other people would write estimates what the UFC finances were. And, you know, sometimes it was kind of close, sometimes it wasn't, but they were estimates. There was nothing concrete. We now live in a world, or we hear stories about how Joe Silva would deal with the fighters. But now we live in a world after your discovery where we know concretely what they were paying from the, the first year of Zufa, 2001 to 2017 at least. And we also have details of their negotiating tactics and their their pay tier structure and stuff. So uh, I guess, dude, are you, are you surprised at... I, maybe how little uh, attention or how little credit you guys get for that material being out because it almost seems to be taken for granted now that the UFC, everybody will say, Jorge Massa, the UFC only pays 18% to revenue. It's like, well, where did that number come from? You, no one seems to credit that. Yeah, so I mean, to your, to your point, back in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 
I was making public comments where I'm doing exactly what you said. I'm estimating. And it, it wasn't, you know, shot in the dark, very random guesses. It was, I'm talking to managers at that point and I'm, I'm seeing contracts. I'm, uh, I believe right after um, the ESPN story with Lorenzo Fertitta, I got brought in uh, behind the scenes to the LOIs. Before then, I had missed that component. Uh, and by LOI, uh, LOAs, I'm sorry, letter of agreement. It's basically a side letter with an extra bonus for a fighter to fight in big fights. You know, sort of the major fighters get those. Um, so my estimate was, you know, getting closer and closer and closer over a period of time. But at that time, especially, you know, pre-2000, pre-Strike Force, let's say, um, the, the, the fact that I was make, making estimates at all, that was attacked, you know, vir virtually uniformly. I was called a fraud. I was saying, I was called, say, people would say I'm making up these numbers. They have no basis in reality. I have no sources. I mean, repeatedly. Uh, all of that was not true. In fact, my estimates that that I came up with in, in doing a damage model in this case, just, you know, sort of to entice these firms to come in, ended up being very, very close to house, Dr. Slinger's. Uh, and I was just using sort of a rudimentary Excel with control cells in a boxing yardstick. And then I was gathering basically pay information as best I could from public sources. And I was supplementing it with sort of what I knew to be these LOAs. I, I, I ended up being very, very close to accurate uh, just using that methodology. Um, I forgot what you asked. No, just about the 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 lack of attention to that the, or credit oh. for getting those numbers out there. But I'll add another one too: is yeah. the the contract changes that the UFC made in 2017 that that basically let Francis Ngannou get out of his contract because there was a five year max. That was, in fact, they basically I think their Bill Isaacson, their attorney, basically admitted that they was were introduced because it mitigates the damages in the case. It basically changes the landscape for there's you have two, and we should explain too, you have two cases going on right now. There's the Lee versus Zupa, which has been certified as a class action. And then there's a second, and that covers from 2010 to 2017. But from 2017 on, there's a separate case that is now going to progress, but it has not been certified as a class yet. It's a separate case. We need discovery. There needs evidence to prove damages if there is any. That For that case, though, they changed their contracts, and, that, and those changed contracts have to be entered into – into the regressions and the discovery for that case. And and those change contracts were a direct result of your lawsuit. And yet, uh, I guess when, you know, for years this case was dragging on and people say it wasn't doing anything, it was a waste of time. And you, how, how frustrating was it when you were seeing at least some results coming from it? Maybe not the massive results you're hoping for, but some results. Well, it's, it's always been very frustrating to us and, and you know, sort of, Behind the scenes, I, I warned our guys, this is going to be a lonely road until we get to the end. And when we get to the end, you're going to end up being thanked. But until then, we're going to be alone. Uh, that's basically the experience of all the other sports. There's definitely, it, it appears to us, a stigma to even acknowledge the changes we've already made. I mean, Francis is a free agent because of the lawsuit Kung filed. That's not a guess. That's a fact. He is. Their people won't even acknowledge that's true. They won't acknowledge we exist. They won't acknowledge we've asked to speak to them dozens of times, dozens. Never spoken to them at all, which we find odd. Uh, Francis is coming up. He's going to earn probably more in one fight than he ever earned in his career. 
thanks to us. We have many other ideas as to what Francis can be doing, what other fighters can be doing to get Francis opponents so they can get similar type paydays. Our, our barrier is we never get in the room to, to pitch. The managers keep us distanced for whatever reason. The fighters don't know about us, which to us is very, very bizarre. It, it, it seems to me if they were, you know, doing their diligence, wouldn't you ask the people who have actually accomplished change? Wouldn't you ask them, you know, what else are you working on? What, what ideas do you have going forward? We don't even get asked. That's a good one. Do you think the barriers that, I mean, cause I talked to a lot of fighters and there is amongst veteran fighters, there's awareness of the case, especially now that there's potential for damage because they all are waiting to see if they can get some damages, right? Even fighters that are way outside the class period are interested because I guess they, they can't, they can't come to the terms with the fact that they're outside the class, that they will not be getting damages. But is the barrier mostly you think like the management, the management is talking fighters out or, or managers whose job it is to represent the fighters, fiduciary responsibility, uh, be fiduciaries for the, the fighters, that they're the ones that should be reaching out to you to see, hear what you could do, what your ideas are that could enhance fighters income. I've said many times our biggest impediment is not Dana. It's the managers. The, the, the managers want to keep us, for whatever reason, away. Um, there, there's a big fear about being affiliated with us, um, so much so that there, there's even been occasions when, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do educational meetings uh, with groups at a time. So not, not one-offs, but I want to meet with 30 people at once. I have trouble getting into the gyms because it's me. It's I have to find a, a neutral location somewhere. Uh, at times, it's been hotel conference rooms because I can't I can't do it in the gym. They don't want me there. Um, that's happened sort of repeatedly as well. Um, I hope that's going to change as they start seeing more concrete changes. Uh, and and again, you know, there's there's only one group making these changes. It's nobody else. It's no managers that are doing this. It's us. It's just us. Is it possible? I guess for the management side, do you think it's more likely it's because they're so terrified of the power the UFC has, the influence purses, that they can come back and be be retributive on them, come up for retribution if they deal with you, or do you think it's the argument that a lot have been made that a lot of managers are brokers, and they actually their interests lie with the UFC and not the fighters? Or do you th I think it depends where they are. So there's uh, using Francis again. Francis isn't even in the UFC. So what, what's the fear now? That that is bizarre to, to us. It's it's like you are now in a position where you can actually wield a weapon on, on your own, Francis. There, there's levers you can play now that will be not only good for you, but the entire industry. And we're not asked. I find so that very, very bizarre. So there are, besides the antitrust, because your, your goal in the antitrust lawsuit, and we'll get to, I guess your goal for the future is the antitrust lawsuit is one, damages, but also injunctive relief to limit contracts. You you want to propose your group, the MMAFA, and we, I should have cited that. You are also the attorney with the founder of the MMAFA, which is uh, an association for fighters. One of your goals is to get the Muhammad Ali uh, Boxing Reform Act passed to cover, expanded to cover MMA, uh, so that... And I guess the argument you guys make is that that would prevent the the uh, promoters from owning the titles. There's some debate about that, if it interpreted that way, but that's your goal. But do you have other ideas in your mind, other methods that you think you could weaken 
UFC contracts or MMA other promotions contracts and set up more a more com- uh, competitive landscape for fighters. Yes, in fact, I, I think I have a roadmap that, if followed, will lead to either a, a concession and outright release, or the threat of a judgment that undoes the UFC's contracts with star fighters. One of the two. Um, either way, that's going to benefit Francis. Um, I haven't asked. I mean, I, I basically, if you if you follow the MMA FA's Twitter. I tease it. I tease these ideas repeatedly over and over and over and over again. Nothing. And no one contacts you. Okay. But no. what about the, what about other promotions? Do other promotions ever contact you about? And I, I know the answer to that because I know <laughs> because the the other promotions in this, would you are doesn't it seem likely that the other promotions in MMA, there there's kind of like two two types of promotion. One loves the status quo because they serve as a feeder to the UFC, so they don't want they don't want new entrants into it because it it potentially pushes them out of the being a prime feeder to the UFC, which is their goal. And the other is the if you look at the 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 ones that are getting all the venture capital, their pitch is basically we're going to be the Pepsi to the UFC's Coca Cola. They don't want the system to change because they want to build a parallel universe. You know, basically a parallel like the WWF, WWE, and the WCW in the back in the day. You know, a parallel universe where they can operate just like the UFC and not actually compete. Hundred uh, percent. John Fitch just gave an interview the other day, the one with Jimmy. Smith, um, where, where he's talking about the, the regional shows like the status quo. They love it. Uh, it's just them. No, nobody else can come in because they are already the feeders to the UFC. They don't want any other other ones to come in. They don't want you know somebody to be able to raise a fighter from uh, amateurs, grow a local fan base, and be able to do their own shows in the Bay Area or you know Cincinnati or Chicago. That they, they don't want that. And then you get to sort of. The, the tier up promotion, which is really only Bellator and PFL, and it's patently obvious to me, they don't intend to compete. They don't want to compete. They don't want the Ali Expansion Act to come into existence. They want, as you say, to be able to go out to, I'll call it stupid money, uh, selling them on the idea, we're going to be Pepsi to UFC's Coke. Now, if you ask me, um, in my opinion, they're set, setting money on fire. They're stealing it from stupid people who are investing in a product that will never work because the investors don't understand the sport. People who are raising money, I'm pretty sure, do understand the sport, but they're getting paid all along. So they don't give a shit what happens five years, 10 years down the road when that promotion inevitably goes bankrupt. They don't care. If uh, Just as uh, you know, another aside, if you followed Bellator's filings the last time we were in dc with the ali expansion act it was very 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 apparent they were making it they were trying to straddle the fence and their straddle was we're trying to appear pro fighter while at the same time making sure congress knows we very much oppose this act that's what they were doing in their public filing um not many not many people understood what they were seeing when bellator did that because they were cute about it but they were clearly opposed to the ali expansion act yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember pointing that out at the time because they had publicly made statements were very much in support of it. Uh, I did an interview with Scott Coker did, but then I think Tracy Long was it their attorney at the time. Tracy Lost, sorry, Tracy Long is a different, yeah, different company, right? That makes it up. But uh, she she filed a, a statement on their behalf saying they supported it, but then they wanted removed all the stuff that made it 
function as a bill that creates uh, a competition. So it was uh, it was it was very two headed on their part, uh, you know, two faced. Uh, to get back to the lawsuit now that you have class cert, I want to go through this appeal because right now the the steps are going to be is that the 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 defendants now have filed their notice to uh, their petition to appeal they, they, to the Ninth Circuit. That's the the next court up, the appeals court that makes the decision if this judge made the right decision on this. They filed. Then you guys are going to file your um, your reply to that. And then I guess before the end of the year, we should get a response from the Ninth Circuit if they're going to review the judge's. Uh, decision, his class certification or not. And if he if he doesn't, then that's a game changer. If they decide not to look at it, that's massive because that means you guys, we have already know you're going into trial early next year. But here's some of their stuff they're appealing. And they, I mean, from my point of view, these are some of these are pretty strong arguments. I'd like to hear if you can reply on any of them. One of their things is the, um, they, they claim that the plaintiffs, you have not presented a common method for demonstrating individual antitrust impact. In other words, that the fighters, because there's such a wide variety of fighters, uh, and some of them, you know, are maybe unranked, some of them are ranked, and th- there's no way to show the individual merit of who would get damages, and even if 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 you're if the UFC was operating in a competitive market, which one of them would even be in the UFC getting paid? Uh, so, do you guys do you know what the response to that is? Do you think that's a a, a strong argument by the the plaintiffs or not? So Nash is pointing out their second basis of appeal. Their their first one was actually uh, a criticism of our use of wage share compared to uh, just nominal wage level. They, yeah, they, I, was, I, I was saving that for later because I like to talk. Okay, about so that. I'll, I'll no, skip over that. We'll, we'll come let's back go to back. That one. Let's go back. Since you're on that track of mine, let's talk about okay. wage share versus wage level. They're talking. Uh, I I just personally don't find that as strong. So that's why I was leaving. But they're talking about the, the idea that the, that in this case you, you because you want to talk about the percentage that should be go to the fighters. And they're like, well, that doesn't really matter because in all other cases, we talk about if wages are going up or not or being suppressed or not. Correct. So, so what, what is meant by what Nash said is the, the UFC is making the argument over time. Back in 2005, they may have been paying purses of 4000 and 4000 And then when you get to the end of our class period, 2017, they're paying twelve and twelve. So basically, they're saying if we were a monopsony, we wouldn't have to pay a dime more, let alone uh, before you even get into percentages. We could have just stuck them at four and four and kept that level. Why would we raise the the wage level if we were exercising monopsonistic control? Now, our response to that is unlike any other industry, in particular combat sports, the fighter is not an input into an end product. So the example that we use is an iPhone. An iPhone you have, has thousands of engineers who work on various components of this product. And then at the end, you know, when it's sold for $1,200, how do we know what engineer contributed what value to this end product? We don't know. Now, in combat sports, we know almost down to the penny because the fighter is not an input. They are literally the product. Not only are they the product, we know, unlike virtually any other industry, the exact costs of production and the exact revenues that event generated with that fighter participating. That's why wage level is appropriate in sport because the athletes are the product and in particular combat sport because it's individual and we can narrow down very, very accurately revenues out, revenues in. So we know what they're uh, revenue produced is, 
um, which is why we say wage share is appropriate. Now, if you look at what was occurring in the UFC over a period of time, basically you see their wage share start to increase 2007, 2008, going into strike force. Why, why would it in increase? Well, because they had competition at that time. Pride existed. Strike Force was coming on. Um, some other shows were doing some big shows. Affliction. So their wage level goes up. And then post Strike Force, you see their wage level go down pretty substantially. And not only does it go down, you start seeing in their internal uh, correspondence and in their communications with their bankers, they intend for that wage level to never get above 20% again. And lo and behold, what happens uh, from 2017 to 2022, uh, Nash estimated that percentage has decreased from 19.4% down to 13%, keeps going lower as the UFC's revenue increases. So that's that's sort of the response to the wage level. Sports is unique in that we, we have the data and we know exactly what the product is. So you can allocate yeah, I don't, very, very accurately down to the individual. Yeah, the wage share one doesn't because the other thing too is we, the problem. I think some people look at it as is this is labor in the sense of like people at a uh, factory working when in many ways they're independent contractors that are independent businesses. So to me, the obvious comparison, even if you use the App Store comparison, uh, the argument is Apple as a uh, has a monopoly power over App Stores because they can charge a ridiculous fee for using their App Stores, thirty percent. Um, and they keep it at 30%. It's not that the, the every year the inflation might increase the price of the apps, but the Apple still takes that 30%. Uh, and and where way it's reversed, it's the cellophane policy. They've set a price, they've taken the maximum amount, and they just keep it there every year. And I think that's what I think that's the argument with the UFC. That's why the wage level, wage share, their argument in uh, in the um, in the appeal is not convincing me. But the other ones, let's go back now to the. Uh, uh, common method because these ones I think are much stronger. These are much stronger uh, so, so, arguments. So your second argument, your, your second argument is essentially the the UFC is essentially arguing Dr. Singer can show class wide impact uh, in terms of damages to the class. What the UFC says is the defect is the UFC says once he's determined class wide impact, there's no way for him to effectively allocate that class wide impact down to the individual level. They say he just pulls an assumption out of a hat, and does it sort of uniformly. Our response to that is, no, not only does he not just pull it out of a hat, the, the UFC pretty obviously, and the judge actually cites this, had pay tiers and pay, basically a pay structure that they repeatedly admit we're not deviating from. You see this in the, sort of the correspondence back and forth when fighters are trying to negotiate deals and the response is, I'm not deviating that for one fighter. I have to justify that to the other managers. I have a pay structure. I'm not screwing that up. Um, things like that. And then the, the other response is, uh, unlike some of the cases they cited, like one case that they cite is NCAA walk-on uh, so with the, the sort of the idea being if, if an NCAA walk-on is – now participating in the scholarship pool, they should, in theory, be taking a spot from somebody who had a scholarship before. So you have a substitution problem. Who who ends up with a scholarship and who does not out of the out of the pool of people that are on a college football team? Well, in our case, we don't have a random pool of amateurs. The, the UFC is pulling from what Dr. Singer called the ranked pool of fighters using fight matrix or uh I believe Fight Matrix is the main database he used. 
essentially the UFC is pulling from already established fighters that are sort of already at the top of the regional level before they get to the UFCs. They're already up up levels from the vast majority of fighters. Uh, so you don't have that sort of random substitution problem. It's all, it's interesting. Well, I mean, that, that's been my complaint about your case in weird ways that regret, because I think um, the, 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 you, it's almost too displaced the, the rankings you guys made to Chris me that, that the singer's model uses a wide range of rankings as part of the damage class. And it's, uh, and for me, it's much more obviously. I use the IBC of New York case. It's the champions, the very top guys that are the 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 source of the the damages. If you're gonna have monopoly power, you have to control them, and that's the the argument. I found interesting one of the footnotes the judge make is he he cites actually he talks about the International Box of New York, and he also cites the fact that it's the controlling of rank and title uh, that gives USC power. He has a footnote on that. I don't remember that argument being made by you guys in this case. And so I'm curious your thoughts. It's kind of interesting that the judge brought up something that I agree with. And I think I've seen your presentations to the ABC you agree with, but I don't remember that being brought up by your, your side in the case. So is this judge better informed than we assume or. Maybe we should show money. Yeah. I mean, for if obviously for me, not for Jason Cruz or Paul Giff, those guys, listen, who, who wants to hear those guys? But, I mean, to, to answer your question more directly, um, the, the judge is clearly showing more nuance than what he got from our direct papers. I, I, I agree with that. He's he's picking up on things that all the pieces are there, but he's now putting all the pieces together uh, in, a, in a way that I, I was op optimistically uh, surprised by. He, he's sort of figured out how the UFC is using Ascension to dictate co contract term. That is not intuitive to most, but if you read his footnotes, like you said, I think he's doing that. But I, one thing though, to bring up on the, the, the version of the model that I like, and this is a criticism towards the, the, um, Hal Singer's model is that it shows no damages for about a dozen, I think 13 or 14 fighters who are the, basically the biggest fighters in the, the promotions history, like Brock Lesnar. And under my interpretation, I have to agree with these critics, I would assume that the most damaged fighters are actually guys like that, because if you use the boxing model, you can just do a comparison. You know, Canelo Alvarez sells this much, Brock Lesnar sells this much, Brock Lesnar should get a similar payday as Canelo Alvarez, but we don't see, we didn't see that. So what's your, what's your take on that? That, that, that's, a, that is that a correct, is that a proper criticism? It is a criticism. And Hal was asked this during the classification hearings. Hal's model, his regression model that he's establishing class-wide impact and damages uh, in the Lee case for, showed impact for 1,514 fighters out of 1,528 fighters. So 14 fighters, are he's not showing impact. And he was asked directly for the, exactly the reason you stated. It's intuitively illogical for people who know the sport that those guys weren't injured. And Hal's response is, no, 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 I'm not saying they weren't injured. I'm saying under my regression that captures over 99% of the class, they were such outliers, I couldn't capture them in this model. They were off the chart uh, in terms of the regression that they he couldn't reliably say this regression impacts them one way or the other. They were just such outliers. Now, he, he, during that hearing, he's asked, are, are, you, are you saying then that these guys are not damaged? And Hal says, no, not at all. In fact, they were probably damaged on the high end 
this regression doesn't capture them, there could be others. He says that, just not, not in this model. This model did not work for them. Um, but I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't believe that means they were not damaged. In fact, I would say they're probably damaged on the high side. Well, I guess the one positive, if you're worried about the little guy, the Howell's regression model shows the damages are for the little guy more than for the, the guys that made a lot of money. So if there's damage awarded, yeah. the, the little guy will at least will get the the lion's share of the, uh, the rewards for that. And we should uh, uh, to go on really quick. And then some of the other complaints about the appeal really quick. They, they also argue that you guys cannot distinguish between the impact of pro-competitive and anti-competitive conduct. In other words, you can't show that uh, that you say there's two different things happening. You can't show how much of the damages is because it's anti-competitive and how much of these damages are from the fact that the UFC is so good at their job, basically the pro-competitive stuff that the UFC brought in all these fighters. And because people are so interested in seeing all these fighters together that it increased their revenue and value that you cannot distinguish the, the, the difference between the two of them. I think my answer on this is going to be brief. I'll say the judge heard those arguments and essentially what those arguments buried down or boiled down to was the UFC saying, just because we're such better promoters and we have promoter acumen and we have this special sauce on the side, our events are so much better. The, the judge basically shows, in my opinion, disdain for that theory. He basically says there's nothing in the record that supports that whatsoever. And in fact, their economists, while making that argument, offered zero support for the suggestion as some sort of special sauce. What the judge said there is ample evidence for is the UFC using brutal coercive tactics to lock up fighters for the vast majority of their effective careers. That's what he said. That's why they're in their position, not special sauce, not promoter acumen, not because they're better at what they do, because they have basically one through 15 in every weight division. And now in order to compete to get to the top, you have to sign with them. The final argument they make is that there's another case now in front of the Ninth Circuit. I believe it's in front of the Ninth Circuit, the Google Play Store case appeal, where Hal Sanger is also the uh, econometrician on that and, and put a model that they're arguing is wrong. And they're claiming that the his model in the in the good Play Store, the Google Play Store case is a flawed that um, like each individual developer would pass along their cost savings from if there was lower development fees from Google's uh, to the consumer. And uh, and their argument is that this is like similar to your model that the UFC would that because if the UFC didn't have this market power those savings the, that money would flow to the fighters and they're arguing that's a, a false assumption because there it, there's not a commonality that he assumes there is uh, I, I think that's my my attempt to explain it to the layman I might be wrong there do you have a, any points to make about that argument about Hal Sanger's models or what Nash is talking about is their third basis of appeal basically pointed out to the Ninth Circuit, hey, you guys are hearing the appeal in the Google Play Store, and I, I believe it's like September 12th is the oral argument in that case. At the very least, Ninth Circuit, put our appeal on hold until you figure out what you're doing with that Google Play Store case, because you may want to remand us back down to the trial court level with questions based upon your decision in Google Play. Or you may think your decision in Google Play uh, is somewhat more dispositive on uh, the, the merits of their appeal. At least wait until you figure out what happens with Google Play before you reject our notice of appeal or our petition for appeal. Uh, 
that's basically their 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 last shot at getting the Ninth Circuit to accept the basis of their appeal. They're they're saying there's another relevant case that you are now at oral argument stage. At least wait, see what happens with that case before you decide on ours. Now, my understanding, if they're at oral argument stage September 12th, they could be to the point where they're going to get a written decision, say, in the next four to six months after that after after that oral argument. Just in, ter- in terms of timing, uh, when I researched this about a year ago, the whole process is about uh, a year to a year to two months, three months maybe, 15 months total, from the filing of the petition to appeal to the briefing schedule, to oral argument, to written decision. That process seems to be about 15 months long. So if they are now at oral, you can figure they should be at written maybe in the next four four, four months or so. That should be right around the time that we, we might get a decision on, on whether or not they're going to accept the appeal at that time, four months, at the end of the year. Yes, and, and what what's, uh, Zufa is basically requesting is don't make any decision on ours until you see the result of theirs. So basically delay it a little longer. Yes. It's, yeah. yeah so it's, it's another just, delay tactic. Yes. Well, and and it seems smarter than the longer delays. It's a win for UFC Zufa because your damages don't increase with inflation. Your damages are frozen. So they and as their revenues and profits enlarge, your damages actually shrink for them. And plus, there's the pain and suffering and cost on your end that you guys have to recoup at some point. And that, now to, to John's point on on that aspect, that, that's true on Lee. But Lee's case was December 16, 2010 through June 30th, 2017. And, and that's on the on the early end, the December 16, 2010 date is just statutory. It, it dates back four, four years from the date we filed. And, and that's to basically discourage private plaintiffs from knowing about a suit and sitting on it for 10 years, 15 years, and then coming, oh, voila, you know, trying to get 20 years of the damages. They're, they're trying to encourage and basically mandate that plaintiffs, when you first know that you have a case, you better start working on it because you're going to be told uh, you only get to look back four years. Now, on the on the late side, June 30th, 2017, the lease case stops there not because it had to. It stops there because we didn't get any more uh, economic data from Zufa beyond that date. So when we turn over the data to Dr. Singer to model damages, he doesn't have anything beyond that. So what he did is he defined the class. It ended June 30, 2017. Now our fix for that, because we have a time period gap, our fix for that was we filed the Johnson and Dalloway case. We filed that in June of 2021. I believe it was like June 21st, uh, 2021. Looks back four years. So it goes back to June 30th, 2017. So we don't have a time period gap. And it goes to the present. Now, what what the judge did at the subsequent hearing, um, he, he certified class August 9th, and then we had a status conference August 21st. At the August 21st hearing, the uh, judge walked out and within minutes, he made it very obvious to both sides. Lee's going to be fast-tracked due to the passage of time and the import of the case. Um, it's going to be fast-tracked for, for trial. I'm going to schedule that for March or April of next year. Following that, we're going to have a damages trial in Johnson. I'm going to lift discovery in Johnson immediately, meaning 
we haven't even started discovery in the Johnson case yet. What lifting the, the discovery stay means is now we're going to get Zufa's next, next round of financials. We're going to get their next round of promos, their next round of all their internal correspondence with the executives, managers. Um, and we can start serving third-party subpoenas again to build up the Johnson case. I should point out, too, the judge also ordered the uh, unsealing of documents for the Lee case. It, it, it was implied to me, and I don't know if it's correct, that he, going forward in the, the Johnson case, he might not have as much redacted and sealed. So if we start getting complaints and evidence presented to the court from Johnson, we might get like more information than we did in Lee the way it came about, that we become less redacted when we get it. Is that accurate? I, I think uh, just as a practical reality, I don't, I'm not sure that Bulwer, you know, made that, uh, I, I'm not sure he made that direct of a ruling, but as a practical matter, I think that's going to be correct just because of the policy reasons he cites, you know, the passage of time, the import of the case, uh, the delay that we've already sort of endured and the, the you know, it, it gets harder to argue this is trade secret type stuff when it's eight years old or 10 years old. Or 12 years old. Um, John Johnson's even coming up to that now. I mean, his case starts in 2017. So that data is going to be six, seven, eight years old by the time we see it. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I think the exact rationale of what Bulware has said is going to apply in large part to the next round of documents. Now, what, what I want people to understand, and, and Fitch was kind of correcting the record on this in, in his podcast. That doesn't mean, I, I believe in our case, if you look on our website, it says 800,000 documents. I'm virtually certain it was over 1.2 million documents uh, when all was said and done. Uh, I, I believe our site just didn't get updated. Um, that doesn't mean all 1.2 million are going to be unsealed. It means anything that we filed in connection with building our case, that's, that's what gets unsealed, with the exception of if it has Kung Lee's phone number or you know, Bill Isaacson's email address and the phone number, you know, things like that, personally identifiable information will be redacted uh, or the other exception he made was medical information, redact medical information, anything else, any of the financials uh, are going to be unsealed. And, and just, I know some of the writers have asked me about this. We, we had a fourth expert report that I believe was entirely sealed or for the most part, entirely sealed. That was the Guy Davis report. His report is basically an accounting. It's an accounting of cash in versus cash out. So you'll see one of Zufa's arguments in the petition of appeal was if plaintiffs win, they're going to destroy Zufa as a company because that's basically their damage award. Our revenues are only 5% of that. Well, if you follow their cash in cash out model, you'll notice the, <laughs> the reason their net income is showing low is because they've paid out billions in advance to the owners, in the in, in which they fund with loans. That's not operating costs. That's not operating expense. That's them taking money from the future to pay prior owners. That's their problem. That's not our problem. That's their problem. Guy Davis actually traced that through 2017. So I, I believe writers will have some an interest in seeing that. Why do you hate capitalism so much? Paul, I mean, why? Why? That's, that's just a proper, you know, it's a proper business thing. Anyways, I, but uh, well, yeah, okay. So we got uh, we got the appeal coming. We'll have a decision at the end of the year from the Ninth Circuit if it's going to go to if they're going to accept the review of the case or not. Uh, if they don't, we go to trial for Lee in spring of next year. Johnson will start at that time. 
if they do pick up the appeal, we're looking at what, probably a year long appeal process to go to review the briefs and stuff. And then either they overturn the judge, they send it back for questions or they affirm his decision. So it's, the, I guess the, we're at a point where either we're looking at trial next year, or we got to wait till the end of next year to see what the heck's going to happen to the case. So that this was also from that status conference, uh, August 21st, that the judge says after, you know, after he tells us he's fast tracking Lee, he's scheduling Lee for trial, March, April of 2024, I'm going to work backwards from that date. So he dated back essentially 90 days from March. And he's like, I'm going to schedule a summary judgment for November. So you guys can file your summary judgments, plaintiffs, you reply four weeks later. Uh, we'll have a ruling before we get into uh, deep into 2024. He was making it, at, le at least in, in my view, uh, the way he was scheduling items made it appear he finds it highly, highly unlikely he's going to rule in their favor on summary judgment. Just as an example, he discovered he, he scheduled uh, the UFC wanted to make some discover, discovery requests. Um, basically to supplement the record. And basically what their argument is, is in order to proceed with injunctive relief, the plaintiffs have to show that what they were alleging in terms of barriers to entry still exists. So we want to do discovery to show all these robust competitors that now exist that popped up after the close of our discovery period uh, to show that what, you know, pair, Plaintiffs are alleging in terms of barriers to entry is not true. The judge says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you try that. I'm probably going to deny your request, but I'll let you file. And he, he schedules that for the exact same day as summary judgment, which is an, a strong indication. He doesn't care what that discovery request requests or says. He's And it sort of appears he's made up his mind that, our discovery record, as we argued, was complete through June 30th, 2017. And whatever happens post that date is irrelevant to the Lee case. It goes into Johnson. It's It seems like the judge is going to do that. So uh, under, under that scenario, you know, we would brief summary judgment in November. It would probably be decided in January. We'd go to trial end of March or April unless Zufa's notice of appeal is taken. If their notice is taken up, I figure we would be scheduled for briefing maybe May or June of 2024, maybe oral argument towards the end of 24, and then um, some sort of decision probably early 25, which would put us, say, summer to fall, trial 25, if the appeal is taken. Obviously, we're hoping there's no need to take the appeal. Um, the, and the Ninth Circuit denies the request, and we we go we go forward with trial. Well, that's the reason I didn't bring up summary judgment. I thought it was a I I I read the same thing and I inferred the same thing that it's a done deal. It definitely sounds like from especially his wording and everything else in that uh, class cert. Uh, it sounds like he's made up his mind. We're going to that summary judgment's a done deal. But if we get okay, so now the point is, we go to trial and stuff. We also have this injunctive relief, but injunctive relief is going to be decided, argued about, and examined during the Johnson case for for the trial for Lee. It's only the damages, and the damages. I've, I've seen a lot of people say this. It's going to be the judge deciding this. No, the damages are going to be determined by a jury. Is that that's correct, right? Jury determines the damages. 
Yes. Uh, the judge is the one who makes up his decision on the injunctive relief. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection main card and prelims UFC preview shows, the sixth round post-fight show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.